0: Dot org slash to sign up now. That's Podcast with an S. Thanks.
1: From KQED. On the West Coast, you can find Chinatowns from Seattle to San Diego. And in the Bay Area, we have two of the oldest, in San Francisco and Oakland. But did you know that San Jose used to have a Chinatown? It's actually had five throughout its history. This week on Bay Curious, why isn't there a Chinatown in San Jose today?
2: Support for Bay Curious
3: comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a
1: chance to win some cool prizes. Hi there, I'm Rand abdel from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country, and everything in between. Support this work today.
0: You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.
1: We sent KQED Silicon Valley reporter Aditi Bunlamudi to unravel the mystery of San Jose's lost Chinatowns.
3: To answer this question, I had to first understand why San Jose had so many Chinatowns to begin with. We have to go back to the mid-1800s, around the time of the gold rush. Thousands of immigrants came from all over the world looking for gold, including many from China.
0: So many of those Chinese immigrants that came were working class.
3: That's James Lai, a professor of ethnic studies at Santa Clara University.
0: And they came for the same reason why they still come to this very good day, for economic opportunity.
3: James says a lot of them found work in mines or on the Transcontinental Railroad.
0: And those were often short-term contracts that they were being paid to come. Room and board and transportation would be provided.
3: When those contracts were up, many of those men were on their own to find more work. Some of them went to San Francisco and opened laundromats and other businesses. Some built levees throughout the Sacramento Delta. And some began working in agriculture, picking the orchards in the Santa Clara Valley.
0: The ratio was roughly 26 to one, Chinese American men to women at this point in time. And they were sending money back uh, to help family back home, but they weren't wealthy. They, they, they never achieved the wealth that they hoped they would achieve then to be able to return back to their villages and retire or help their families. So they stayed and they endured.
3: Racist policies kept them from owning property, and white people didn't want them in their neighborhoods. So in the 1860s, in San Jose, they built the first Market Street Chinatown. That first Chinatown lasted until 1870. And then the Vine Street Chinatown was built and thrived from 1870 to 1872. Both of these Chinatowns were burned down. From the moment Chinese immigrants started coming to America, they faced racism and violence. But the Chinese immigrants kept rebuilding. There really wasn't a choice. It was
0: just simply to to continue to try to plant your roots. And the only way you could do it was through these kinds of Chinatowns.
3: And the community was growing fast. By the time the third Chinatown was built, there were more than 1,400 people who lived there. It was called the 2nd Market Street Chinatown, and it was located in downtown San Jose, where the Fairmont Hotel is today. This Chinatown was much bigger than the ones that came before it. There were shops, three restaurants, a theater, and a temple. The people who lived there worked in factories, manufacturing cigars, shoes, clothing, and furniture. Connie Young-Yu is a local historian.
4: My grandfather came in 1881. He was an 11-year-old boy, a laborer, who was brought over by his uncle who had been living in San Jose since the 1860s. America was called Gumsan Gold Mountain. His uncle was telling him about this, you know, beautiful area where you can work hard and there were good wages in Gumson.
3: After arriving in San Jose, he worked in his uncle's shop where many laborers came to eat, play cards, and send money back home.
4: In those days, there was child labor. So he worked in the store, he helped stock. He was like a janitor and he helped serve food to the workers when they came.
3: Eventually, he landed a job as a houseboy for a white dentist family outside of Chinatown. And
4: it was there where he was exposed to racial
3: violence for the first time.
4: When he would go back to the Market Street Chinatown, he'd have to run really fast because white kids would be throwing rocks at him. So this was a vivid memory he passed down to us kids.
2: The anti-Chinese movement had been building throughout the Western United States for about 20 years at that point. Barbara
3: Voss is a historical archaeologist at Stanford, and she says it's not surprising
2: that Young faced racial violence in San Jose. The first documented and verified act of anti-Chinese violence that I'm aware of was in 1869 when the first Methodist Episcopal church, which was a largely white church but that had a Sunday Sunday school for Chinese children and did uh, missionary work to the Chinese, was burned down in an arson fire.
3: At this point, California had already enacted legislation that targeted these immigrants, from the foreign miners tax to morality laws, which kept Chinese women out. And in 1882, Congress passed the nation's most restrictive immigration bill, the Chinese Exclusion Act. It prohibited all Chinese laborers from immigrating to the U.S. and prevented those that were here from becoming citizens. This discrimination coming from federal and local governments, set the scene for San Jose to host California's first anti-Chinese convention in 1886. Here is Barbara.
2: There were motivational speakers who were chanting racist slogans, arguing that the Chinese must go, making arguments about why white people were superior to Chinese people, making arguments about what they perceived as the negative impact of Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans on the economy of San Jose. Barbara says there are echoes of that language today. You might substitute some words, but the arguments are very, very similar about taking jobs from white people or taking jobs from Americans, depressing wages, all those kinds of things. She says the rally drew attendees from all over the state. The anti-Chinese movement in San Jose was as much about local boosterism as it was about racism. And in fact, those two things were seen as going together. The leaders of this movement felt that they could not promote San Jose as a place for business development and settlement if the Chinatown remained in downtown. A year
3: after the convention, the San Jose Mercury News featured front page testimony from city leaders. Everyone from the fire and police chiefs to the street commissioner to the mayor had one message, Chinatown must go.
0: It was of their opinion that the general condition of the locality, in a sanitary point of view, could not be worse, and in an aesthetic or moral sense, it was revolting. The filth that has been accumulating for years is so thoroughly saturated under the walks and under the buildings, gambling, smoking, and prostitution is carried on extensively and in a manner that renders it difficult to detect or convict.
3: No surprise, Mayor Charles Brayfogle and the city council voted unanimously to get rid of the 2nd Market Street Chinatown. But before any official action was taken, the 2nd Market Street Chinatown also burned down. That made it the 3rd San Jose Chinatown to succumb to arson. There are no recorded casualties, but homes and businesses were destroyed and the community was displaced. Before the fire, Chinese residents had already started moving out of San
2: Jose. After the fire, even more left. There are anecdotal accounts from descendants that some people started considering whether or not to move back to China. Some folks moved into more rural areas where they were out of the public eye. Again, Connie Yu.
4: My grandfather fled to San Francisco and he didn't come back for 10 years.
3: This community would rebuild again with the help of another immigrant, a farmer named John Heinlein.
4: He's a landowner. He came from Württemberg, Germany, when he was like three years old.
3: According to Connie, Heinlein and his family faced anti-German discrimination while living in the Midwest.
4: He had hired Chinese before. He leased land to the Chinese in his other holdings, like in Fresno and Kings County. A few months after the
3: fire, news broke that Heinlein had leased some of his land to Chinese residents who lost their homes and land. He was going to build a new Chinatown.
4: There was such an uproar among the citizens, including City Hall, the mayor, and uh, they said, down with John Heinlein, you know, he's a traitor to his people. You know, Chinatown's a blight on our population, and here he wants to rent to, to lease land to the Chinese. Members of the Home Protection
3: Association, which was basically an early group of NIMBYs, visited Heinlein to make him reconsider his decision. The ugly language and racist slurs exchanged in this contentious meeting were published by the San Jose Mercury News.
0: You are cutting your own throat and you will find by this move, your property will be greatly reduced in value.
1: Would you, Mr. Heinlein, like to live next door to a Chinaman?
2: Yes, rather than next door to an Irish.
0: I
1: have lived in California
0: for 32 years and am astounded to hear such a remark made by one of the Anglo-Saxon race.
3: Despite death threats, Heinland finished construction in 1887, just months after the fire that destroyed the last Chinatown. Angry locals called the new Chinatown Heinlandville. Here's
4: Connie Yu again. They couldn't drive out Chinatown. Chinatown was there to stay. And John Heinlein, actually, to protect the Chinese, he built a, an eight-foot-high fence. The fence had a gate, which was locked every night, while foot patrols provided
3: security. Eventually, Connie's grandfather became a partner at one of the shops in
4: Heinleinville and was able to settle in San Jose. Heinlein gave him a chance for a new life in San Jose. He was a merchant, and there was able to, to send for his wife in, in China. He had been separated from his wife for 14 years. She came over, and in 1910, they had their first son, my uncle Ming Yang. And then two years later, in June um, 1912, my father was born.
3: Connie says that Heinleinville was a thriving community. About 2,000 people lived there. Newspaper accounts said the new Shingum Temple was the center of the community. A two-story structure, it featured a bright red door with golden pillars on the top. The upper floor housed an intricately carved and gilded altar with five deities. The lower floor was used as a town hall and as a Chinese school for the kids who grew up in Heinleinville. Connie has some
4: old newspaper articles from back then. January 25th, 1914. And it shows that by this time, Chinatown had some respect. The article is from the San Jose Mercury Herald.
3: It's titled, Chinatown Celebrates New Year.
4: The article mentions, you know, how elaborate the festival was and how beautifully the streets were. And it mentioned that my grandfather was one of the men that were decorating the street. So it showed something that Chinatown was established and people re- realized that it was going to be part of San Jose. And it was for 44 years.
3: Heinlandville was San Jose's longest established Chinatown. Until 1931. The Chinese Exclusion Act had been in place for almost 50 years. And because people couldn't come into the country easily, immigration dwindled. Soon, there weren't enough people left in Chinatown to keep it alive. And the Great Depression took a real toll on the Heinlein Estate, which owned the land where the Chinatown stood. In 1931, it went bankrupt, and eventually, Heinleinville became city property and was demolished. When I first started working on this story, I wanted to understand where Heinleinville was located. And it turns out, it's not too far from where I live in San Jose. But walking around, I wasn't able to find anything that marked this rich history. But that's gonna change soon. Connie Young-Yu has been working with the city to build a park where the last Chinatown once stood. She says it will commemorate Heinlein's contributions to San Jose and highlight the history of Chinatown and the deep roots of the Chinese community here. It's going to be called Heinleinville Park.
1: That was KQED Silicon Valley reporter Aditi Bunlamudi. Astute listeners keeping track of all those Chinatowns may have noticed that Aditi only talked about four of them, even though there have been five Chinatowns throughout San Jose's history. There was another small Chinatown in San Jose in the late 1800s called the Woolen Mills Chinatown. It was owned by the San Jose Woolen Manufacturing Company and housed its Chinese workers. If you love Bay Curious, tell a friend or family member about the show. Your recommendations go a long way, and we really appreciate it. Bay Curious is produced by Susie Racho, Brendan Willard, and me, Katrina Schwartz. Our show is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Thanks for listening.
2: Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest running pillow fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck!